This is WCG Patient Radio. I'm Steve Smith from Patient Advocacy at WCG, a company that provides ethical treatment of the people who volunteer for clinical trials and related services that make those trials faster while keeping them safe. We're speaking today with Sarah Tompkins, the founder of the Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome Patient Advocacy Group in the Pacific Northwest. She's here to tell us about that and uh, about Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and about some of the good things that patient advocacy does for people with this disorder and other rare disorders. Hi, Sarah. How are you? Yes. Great. Thank you, Steve. So great to be speaking with you today. When I met you um, recently, you were actually at a patient advocacy event in Washington, D.C. for an organization that gives patients a voice on Capitol Hill, the Every Life Foundation for Rare Disorders. And so I know that you're not only active in the Pacific Northwest, uh, bringing together patient advocacy for many people out there, you're active nationwide, helping to uh, set priorities and advocate for legislative change. So you're quite active. I also met when you came into the event your uh, nice husband, who uh, you introduced to my friend Mark Dant, and um, you're really getting around and making a big difference. So let's talk about those things. Tell us about Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome that you have and that you're advocating for. Well, thanks, Steve. Yes, I, Troy, my husband, as you mentioned, is a big part of why I'm able to advocate. Another reason is the privilege that I have of having such great health insurance. Um, Using that advantage, I've been able to have many, many different medical treatments that enable me to travel and advocate, but I'm a very lucky person. Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome is a genetic connective tissue disease. So basically, at a cellular level, the collagen that I make is faulty. It's weak. It's stretchy. Um, A good example is picturing a basket. Instead of having many woven threads, it has very little threads and is very weak and has a propensity for tearing and being frail. And because of this, it affects every system of the body, not just the joints, but the actual tissue uh, being weaker means that you have issues with blood pressure, uh, with heart, uh, cardiac issues, literally uh, every orthopedic issue you can find. So I have been very privileged to have had over 40 surgeries. Um, and that is a blessing that I know that has enabled me to do such advocacy, but it also really gives me the propensity to advocate for other EDS people and people with connective tissue disease who have collagen issues that aren't able to get the care that I've been so lucky to get. Uh, it's very oh, 40 hard to surgeries. get from specialists. Yes. Did you, yes, did you say 40? 40? Yes, 40? That's Let's see, uh, 40 surgeries and procedures. I have had over five hip procedures, stabilizations, and uh, uh, donor tissue added. I've had six shoulder stabilization surgeries, um, thumb, wrist, arm, elbow. Uh, truly, I couldn't list all of them <laughs> without going into my medical record, but uh, I have so what would happen really if you if you didn't have these surgeries? You, you mentioned are these surgeries preventing Without something these, or yes? So these what? surgeries are repairing something with the kinetic uh, with kinetic tissue disease. What happens is collagen is so frail that we tend to injure our bodies much more easily. Uh, that includes 
but people with hypermobility, for example, have a much greater range of motion. But with that greater range of motion can come also the ability for dislocation and subluxation. And we know that there are people, like people who perform in Cirque du Soleil, who are able to contort their bodies in really interesting and great ways and not have dislocations and subluxations. But unfortunately, it's very difficult to study that particular population for them to be able to continue being performers. They need insurance, and it's hard for them to be in the clinical trial and do a study while being performers in that. So we haven't been able to really make that connection of why body contortionists are able to do what they're able to do, but other people with the same issue with collagen and hypermobility are bedridden or unable to have mobility to stand or walk. For a long time, you bring time, up a I couple of interesting topics there. Uh, you bring up a couple of sure. interesting topics there. The the fact that there's um, a possibility of um, studying populations with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome from a genetic perspective and having different differentiated yes. genetic diagnosis, and the possibility mm -hmm. of clinical trials. Is that is that yes. uh, right? Exactly. And I think that that's something that. I'm very proud of the Ehlers Danlos Society doing the work that they have through the University of Illinois with their work into looking at the genetic cause of hypermobile EBS. But we know that there's a genetic EBS and there's also a hypermobile joint syndrome, which is more of a characteristic versus a trait genetically. And we need to do more clinical study, or we need to do more studies and research to figure out those differences. Um, is there clinical trials? And, uh, is there is, are there clinical research um, efforts going on in multiple places? And are there actual clinical trials, or is the University of Illinois research preclinical? Can you give us an idea what the landscape you know, looks I, like? Unfortunately, I'm not knowledgeable enough with what the University of Illinois is doing right now with the Ellis Family Society. I'm hoping to become more knowledgeable, as it's just sort of seems like it's gotten a change going this year to move to University of Illinois. They were in Baltimore before that, I believe. Um, but I'm very fascinated with what kind of research they're going to be doing because they did, um, in 2017, I believe they did a diagnostic reevaluation. And that was really when they took what was six types of EDS and satisfied that they were really 12 types and that we needed to differentiate people that had Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and people that just had joint hypermobility syndrome. And for example, and are there like clinical trials? Uh, is, I'm sorry no, for interrupting. I think I think there's a lag in our in our phone, so I may uh, jump in a few times. Are there uh, are there Ehlers-Danlos people who are um, cooperating now with the clinical research? And have you heard anything about that? And, or have any thoughts yourself about how you'd like to be on. what you what you'd like to be I asked and what you I myself am in a uh, clinical study for dysautonomia, which is a sister disease to Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. With Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, everything is stretchy. So imagine when I go from sitting to standing, usually a body would compensate and your veins would constrict, get tighter, your heart would beat differently to make up for that change in position so that you didn't faint and that blood got all the way to your head. In my case, because I'm so stretchy, the veins stretch, my blood pools in my legs, and I often faint standing up, which is why when you met me, I was in my electric wheelchair. I use that as a preventative measure because I would so often faint that those fainting injuries were more severe sometimes than just 
the injuries that I was having from just being an Ehlers-Danlos patient. And so that's an so Ehlers, part of my Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Is it um, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome? Would you say um, it's an invisible disorder because you actually don't look yes. like? And other people I've known Very that don't so. look like you have a serious disorder. You look uh, great. Oh, thank you. Yes, and that is sort of a common thing, a joke or running joke that we EDSers have is they were all fairly good looking and don't look like we're sick people necessarily. Um, we're usually all very driven as well, uh, very type A go-getter people. I've met a lot of similar people to myself in my support group here in Washington, and it's been quite amazing to do work that just in this last decade, our group has gone from 25 people in 2011 to over 800 now in Washington State. And so that tells me I'm not sure if it's really a rare disease or is it rarely diagnosed because it's an invisible disability, an invisible disease, truly. And, you, and um, it, it's also a, it's also a um, I have heard, a pain syndrome. Can you talk about that? That's right. So the, the instability of all of these joints, um, the ultimate symptom of that is going to be chronic uh, intra intractable pain, uh, pain that will only get worse, and in my case, I've been lucky to be able to stabilize things uh, and be consistently treated with pain. But I know many other patients with EDS in this state that have trouble seeking out pain treatment because they're because we don't look sick, as you said, because we don't look necessarily like we're suffering. And I think that that's almost a harder leap to make because they don't understand the symptoms. People can't see the scars on my hips or my elbows or on my shoulders all the time. So it's really difficult to communicate all of my instabilities and weaknesses and have people really understand that or believe me. And so that's why it's so, it's such a gift to be able to do this advocacy because I really want people to understand and believe that just like Sia and Lena Dunham have been more aware with their Ehlers-Danlos symptom diagnosis that we all should be more active in uh, explaining our diagnoses. When a child looks at me in my wheelchair, I like to say hi. And if they want to ask why I'm in my wheelchair, I would love to explain it. I, I want there to be less of a stigma around disability and around especially invisible disabilities. So how does um, being in a wheelchair that's a, your wheelchair is a very nice power chair, and I was admiring it because my it? son is in a very similar power chair. And he um, also, like you, he gets around and he's very active, but the power chair is really very necessary. And so how is it yes, when you're you having to live that way and you're traveling and so forth? Gosh, it, my power chair is a gift. It was actually given to me um, from my late best friend's family. Uh, she, Kelly Felter Doyle was the first friend that I made in my EBS support group here in Washington. And she actually taught me how to be my own best advocate. I was a little too mouthy and polite and didn't want to ruffle feathers and wasn't really great at standing up for myself. And she really taught me how to stand up for myself and communicate issues and symptoms. And it was actually, she was on her way to the NIH for a clinical study when she unfortunately passed away um, uh, untimely because of her Ehlers-Danlos symptoms and other symptoms overwhelming her. Um, and so I inherited her chair, and it really has been quite a good luck charm to me 
um, but I worry about it all the time. I worry about its safety traveling. I worry about is it going to come out the plane the other end the same. A couple of times, Troy and I have had to wait an hour for it, and we wonder, is it there? Am I going to be able to walk out of here? I'm very lucky that my husband's so able-bodied and will carry me upstairs or give me a lot of mobility that maybe I wouldn't necessarily have. But I certainly, I worry and wonder what patients who do not have that kind of support must do. And I, I think about that all the time, that I'm truly so blessed and I wish that there was more that I could do. And so it's been great to have this advocacy tool be able to hopefully help all of our patient population with connective tissue disease and EDS. So you mentioned something that I, I need to, I just want to pause on it because it's so important to so many people in our society. Mm-hmm. And that is, um, and this happens to my son as well, when uh, people with power chairs fly, the airlines yeah. frequently break them. And so when you get out the other end, yes. it's, it's often the case that the, your, your wheelchair does not get delivered to you or it doesn't get delivered to you so you can use it, and then you are you could be out of that chair for days or weeks while the repairs happen, and those are your legs, right? Exactly. That's how you get, get around. Yes. And then you're trying to get around doing all this good work for people, and and you're quite capable of doing it, yet they've taken away your legs because nobody um, right. has figured out really a way for those poor airline employees to, to lift those heavy chairs. Right. That's the other thing. It's, I'm very lucky to have a chair that is, I think it's just over 100 pounds, but many are much heavier. And I know that that's been an issue with flying and that mine is small enough of a chair where they're able to put it with other strollers. And I think it's easier to manipulate. But even so, I once had an incident coming where coming back from D.C. where we weren't able to land at a gate. So everyone else walked down the stairs of the plane and I went up the back with the food and the garbage and was terrified and crying and so upset that I mean I just I, I was bewildered because I didn't have anyone there my dad was waiting for me at the gate but they wouldn't let him come get me off the plane or help me in this situation and I didn't feel very secure on that cart that lifted me down and it certainly wasn't a fun situation and the only compensation I was offered was maybe some points to which my dad and I both said, no thanks. We just won't go yeah. with you again. <laughs> We've <laughs> been in that situation not. so often. Yeah, I've seen my son oh, uh, drag so himself on his stomach funny. around the floor because at uh, holiday time, because the airline has, had broken his chair, and it happens again and again and again. So when I know when um, uh, clinical research organizations, pharmaceutical companies are working with patient groups on clinical trials, uh, some of them, mm-hmm. the better ones who are more patient-focused, will provide transportation services and set up ramp vans and rides and so forth. That's so important. That's so Mm -hmm. important, especially because I've noticed with these ride services, like Uber and Lyft even, that there is no accountability to pick up disabled people. I've had it happen to me in D.C. where Ubers will see my wheelchair in the rain. The driver will literally slow down. I can see the car. It's the right car, but they keep driving. And there's no recourse for me other than to get another driver on the app to try to slow down and actually agree to stop and pick me up. But I I understand that it's, it's more work to pick me up, but I would also certainly tip somebody for helping me lift the wheelchair. But there needs to be more resources for people who are disabled to be able to use transportation and to be able to get to places 
just as easily as others. Um, the fact that I have to count on my husband and mom so much for rides because I'm unable to drive myself has been a huge uh, benefit, but I know so many people aren't able to do that, and that's why I have to bring a voice to this group, this group of uh, patients who really need more resources and help than they're being given. And often when they come looking for those resources and help are looked at with incredulous looks because they look fine on the outside. And I think that's it's just as important to recognize that disability runs on a spectrum of visible to invisible. And we have to acknowledge everything in between. Yes, and you do you do so much for so many. It's just those um those things which to other people would be small if they could if they could just provide the you know yes. the access to the buildings and the vehicles you know, and the planes and and let you do your thing and yes. then you'd be you make the big contribution to society that everybody you know wants to make exactly there are a lot of big things and then small things too like I complain about uh, there's a movie rental service Redbox that has kiosks everywhere but if you're in a wheelchair you can't see the screen so you can't rent a movie and so. Uh, I've been working with the Washington Civil Disability Group to try to see if, what we can do with that and hopefully just make little changes in society that will make it more, more comfortable for disabled people to feel like we fit in and we're accepted because it's yeah, hard. That, that, one, that one with the red height. box you're talking about, the little people yes, of America right. that we've worked with often, they call that the reach issue, and they've advocated very yes. successfully in past decades for making gas pumps somehow accessible, or at least the people will come out and gas up your car, the bank yes. ATMs, and there's so many things, if you could just reach it, you could do it. Exactly, and that's why I feel like it's it's so great that every patient with a rare disease or not rare disease really has that power in this country to be able to advocate for themselves. And everyone has this power to be able to go and speak to their representatives, to be able to go and speak at conferences. And I think that that's one of the blessings of our country. And I'm so glad and I'm so blessed and gifted that I'm able to speak for so many people whom I care so much for. Um, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome is so disabling and it's truly such a painful disease. Um, when you sublux or dislocate limbs, and life doesn't stop for that. I remember my biggest fear was not being able to walk down the aisle on my wedding day. So I had a lot of hip surgery <laughs> to be able to do that. Looking back That's on it now, story. it seems scary because I love my wheelchair and I, it's such a great tool to me. I, I would have loved to have used it that day, but at that time I hadn't been able to accept that identity yet and just really wanted to traditionally walk down that aisle and make it not faint and look like a normal, quote-unquote, normal bride. But what I learned was I'm a normal bride even now if I went with my braces on or with my wheelchair or whatever it was, Troy was still going to marry me regardless. And so it really, <laughs> yeah. it's been a really good lesson for me in learning to accept, you know, it's hard when people stare at you sometimes in your wheelchair, but that's why it's so important I advocate because it, this disease is so disabling. It is very painful and we need to bring a voice to these patients because oftentimes they're so bedridden and they're in such pain that they're in survival mode. 
And when you're in survival mode, you aren't able to also advocate for yourself. That's asking too much. So um, certainly all rare disease people will go through bumps in the road where sometimes you are able to advocate more than others because of your health. But I think when we all have the opportunity to advocate, we should. Yes, and upcoming uh, soon is uh, Rare Disease Week on Capitol Hill, which uh, is at the end of February, and that's when um, a lot yes. of us will come into the Hill, hundreds of rare disease advocates, and go in an organized fashion to speak to our legislators about many of these issues. And I know you're a big that's part right. of that. You're, you have been uh, an inspiration not only to me, but I know that you're an inspiration to many people in so many different areas. And it's important that you have used your voice the way you do and in so many ways and show people that your identity is strong as a person with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. You're a wonderful young married couple that comes in together and proud of each other and we're proud of you. And I think you make so many people feel better. So thank you for sharing that story with us today. Thank you, Steve. And thank you likewise for this platform to speak and for doing the work that you are for clinical studies and to make them more more efficient and better for patients. I truly appreciate that because the patient perspective is most important. And I think sometimes yes, that's is. forgotten. Yes, and is. I really value I really value what you all do. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, um, uh, this is um, WCG Patient Radio. We've been speaking with Sarah Tompkins, the founder of the Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome Northwest, Ehlers-Danlos uh, Patient Advocacy Group in the Northwest. And the URL for that group, tell me if this is correct, Sarah, is edsnw.com. That's right. The website is still being worked on, but you can follow us on social media. Great, great. Uh, This is uh, WCG Patient Radio. Thanks for listening, everybody. Goodbye.